Hey everyone, it's David. Just letting you know today's episode of Positive Regression is brought to you by Sunday Scaries. Sunday Scaries is a leading manufacturer of vitamin-infused CBD products, including gummies, tincture oils, energy shots, and more. The gummy bears contain the recommended daily value of vitamins D and B12, The YOLO shots, which have become very popular in the Smith household, contain caffeine, just a little bit, just a good little kick to keep you focused when you are doing things like diligently watching video and logging restarts. Last year, Sunday Scaries won top accolades from Men's Health Allure Best Products and from my good friends at Forbes. You can give Sunday Scaries a try right now by going to sundayscaries.com and using the coupon code POSREGPOD, that is all one word, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D, for 25% off of your purchase of everything that is in stock on that website. They are also currently offering free shipping for orders of $69 or more. That is a nice deal, so take advantage. That is sundayscaries.com. Promo code POSREGPOD for 25% off. joined by David Smith of Motorsports Analytics. On this episode, the fallout of Toyota's parting with Eric Jones, a deep look at what's what with the Xfinity Series, and our Daytona Road Course preview with a special guest. He's a Daytona 500 winner, he's a winner of the 24 Hours of Daytona, and he is a Fox broadcaster. Jamie McMurray joins Positive Regression. Looking forward to that. But first, as always, this is episode 74 of Positive Regression. This is the Bill Baumgartner edition. David, Bill Baumgartner, an owner, not a driver in NASCAR, owner of a longtime Xfinity Series team, base motorsports, I think always using the number 74 unless they ran a second car, but uh, that number 74 won a championship in the Xfinity Series with Randy LaJoy. David, why Bill Baumgartner? Three championships, my friend, oh. and 16 race victories, uh, all coming between 1994 and 1998. Two of those titles were by Randy LaJoy, who also scored 11 of those 16 race wins, and one championship for a Michigan short tracker named Johnny Benson. That was the launching pad for Johnny Benson. Uh, two other wins were by Tim Fidoa, currently a spotter in the NASCAR Cup Series. And I think Around that time, those cars, very colorful, memorable. Lipton Tea was a sponsor. Finalube, Bayer, the Outdoor Channel. They always had something creative on the car and sort of just, uh, I don't know, represented the 90s very well in that regard. And we're going to talk some Xfinity series later in this episode, but this team represented something that may not exist now. I think the closest comparison might be colleague racing, but they aren't 
uh, they aren't having success at the scale of the base motorsports did, uh, because this was a truly dominant, successful, independent Xfinity series team. And we don't see it often, but as the Xfinity series continues to evolve, what is old may become new again. So this might have been something from our past in the mid nineties that could become relevant to the future of the NASCAR Xfinity series. Yeah. And it's cool to think back of some of those, uh, Xfinity series teams. And I like the Matt Collick comparison in terms of the, uh, the independence. I was just trying to think back as you were talking, uh, just think back. There was the one based in Con- Bruco. That's what I was thinking of Bruco motorsports. I, I just think of, you know, solely, uh, Xfinity series teams from back in the day. Uh, what was there? Bruco. There was uh, something you could throw Turner in there. I think, you know, early Turner cars, stuff like that. Uh, there were some good ones and it really had its own identity. Yeah. And, and I liked the kind of the, the freedom of it. It was a different series then. Certainly Cup Series drivers competed, but the teams were independent. And, you know, Alan, one of my favorite television shows when I was in college was on Speed Channel. It was called NBS 24 seven and it highlighted uh, Fitz Bradshaw racing, Braun racing. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You're uh, naming the ones yeah. I like. Yep. Yeah, and it was and it was just a a good look into what smaller teams were doing in NASCAR's second division. And no, th- these weren't lavish things. These were relatively, I would say, modest shops behind the times, maybe. But the fact that they were able to put cars together and go compete against some Cup Series teams, this was when the emergence of Cup Series owned Xfinity programs uh, began, but to understand and appreciate the struggle that they all went through for me was compelling and it was really interesting. And when I think of base motorsports and, and really I, for me, Randy LaJoy is, was the face of base motorsports during its heyday. Um, but when I think back to that, I think of, wow, this was you know, really a relatively small team that was just dominant. I mean, he was, you know, getting 20 top 10 finishes in seasons that had 28 to 30 races. Uh, really something had to just go bad to knock him off his game. That's how good they were. Uh, and base motorsports exemplified, uh, the, the thought of the dominant independent Xfinity series team. And that's how I'll remember him. Yeah. And uh, I believe I read on the internet. So correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, base motorsports or it's, uh, it's parts at least, uh, something became, uh, Kevin Harvick incorporated, correct? Uh, I believe that that's what, again, according to the internet, that, that was the, the start of Kevin Harvick incorporated selling off to them. So, uh, maybe a bit of history there. Yeah, the internet has never veered us in the wrong direction, <laughs> Alan. So that's a that's a good pull by you. Yeah, my good, my good. All right, episode seventy four, the Bill Baumgartner edition. Let's get it started. David, last week's episode here on Positive Regression got a lot of good feedback. So thank you all for listening and let us know if we're doing a good job or not. But we talked a lot about the dominoes that were starting to fall in the Cup Series when it came to free agency and a lot more fell last week, right? Uh, where we last left off. Uh, so let, let's get, we were talking about Eric Jones. That was a big part of last week's, um, talk on the episode. And, uh, before it could even get too, uh, cold, uh, the episode last week, uh, we heard some more Eric Jones news. So, uh, Levine Family Racing revealed it had sold its team. That put Christopher Bell into limbo. Uh, but he was still under contract, right? With Toyota and JGR. So when you read between the lines, that kind of forced a decision. Uh, faster than probably anyone expected for between Eric Jones and Christopher Bell. 
And quickly, within days, Eric Jones was told he would not be re-signed, David. And since then, we have learned officially Christopher Bell will be in the 20 car next year for JGR. Where Eric Jones goes, we do not know. According to the statements, at least, everything is amicable. But we don't know where Eric Jones is headed. So, I mean, Levine Family Racing suddenly shutting down is a bit of a surprise, David. But other than that, I don't... Could this have been avoided at all in term, maybe from the Toyota side of things with the two prospects and only room for one of them? Could that have been avoided? Oh, of course. Of course it could have. Toyota has created a driver development utopia unlike anything any manufacturer or team has ever done in NASCAR. They have poured millions into this. And it, it is quite interesting. Uh, Tyler Gibbs and Jack Irving are, are two of the gentlemen who oversee the TRD development program. And they were recently on Nate Ryan's podcast discussing the intricacies of all of it. They have this lavish performance center in the Charlotte area where drivers go to train and up their game on nutrition. It's pretty amazing. But the problem with, with this is that the Cup Series outlet for Toyota, for these 20 to 30 drivers that are in this development program, is that the outlet is, is Joe Gibbs Racing. That's the problem. <laughs> JGR wants to sign superstars and compete for championships. And that's their call. That's admirable. But there there isn't much interest from their part in developing stars, at least that's what their actions have made clear because they signed Kyle Busch. They signed Matt Kenseth while also dumping Joey Logano. They signed Carl Edwards. They signed Martin Truex. Joe Gibbs Racing is the New York Yankees. They are Real Madrid. They don't develop stars. The stars go there. And this philosophy, while it rubs some fans the wrong way works out very well for Joe Gibbs racing. Yeah. <laughs> they seriously compete every year for championships and that's not something they can do if their stable consists of young drivers. The problem here, of course, is the philosophy runs counter to what Toyota wants to do. And that's not entirely on JGR. That's pretty much on Toyota for being Unable to align with a program that has proven it can last beyond what, say a decade? Because they came into the Cup Series initially. They debuted with Bill Davis Racing, which was this plucky underdog and probably better suited for the Truck Series. Michael Waltrip Racing and Red Bull, which could barely make races in their first season. They landed JGR before 2008 and that was huge. But after that, they didn't attract anyone save for Furniture Row Racing and Levine Family Racing, who, as we have learned in hindsight, operated far differently than the traditional NASCAR teams. And intelligently, I will say, chose to exit the sport once sustainability became a real concern. Those were smart teams. And Toyota ended up winning a championship with Furniture Row. But there was nothing there that was lasting. Toyota failed in building any kind of permanence. 
And you can look over at, oh, another manufacturer, Chevrolet, has all of Hendrick Motorsports and RCR and Ganassi and JTG Doherty, all of whom have been in NASCAR for 20 years plus and who build their own cars and, if nothing else, have a knack for sticking around. Why Toyota? hasn't just secured any of those organizations to act as the destination for its pipeline drivers is beyond me. Because the way I see it, the debate of Eric Jones versus Christopher Bell is fun to have. Uh, it doesn't really matter where you stand on Eric Jones versus Chris Bell or where our listeners stand. It's a good conversation, certainly. But that conversation is entirely separate from the problem that just came to the surface. Because if Toyota had a more reliable program in its portfolio, both drivers could have stayed. And until this problem is corrected, there will be more of these log jams. Yeah, and give it up to uh, JGR reps, uh, Dave Alpern, who has been very open and answered a bunch of questions. You know, me had a kind of press conference about this. David Wilson from TRD uh, really went in, in depth with Jordan Bianchi of The Athletic. I, I encourage you to check out that article because, he, David, they addressed a lot of these issues about having another strong Toyota team and what that may do. You know, th- that's not exactly what Joe Gibbs Racing wants, right? A huge competitor siphoning off information from their uh, – from their manufacturer that, that they've benefited so much from, you know, there are, there are winners and losers to stuff like that, but let's, let, let's have the, the, the bell versus Jones conversation because uh, as you said, it's a good one to have. We could look at it numbers wise. We could look at it practically where Eric Jones was a free agent, if you will, Christopher Bell still under contract. So you have a, a contract you have to honor or maybe get in some trouble by breaking it. Uh, and you have someone who is, you just have to choose not to resign them. In, in that issue, in that context, maybe it was easy for Joe Gibbs Racing or Toyota to make that decision. But there's also, David, you love, I love when you bring it up because it opens my eyes and I hope it opens up a lot of listeners ears. There's been a significant investment in Christopher Bell that Toyota does have to think about, even if he is not on the performance level of Eric Jones at the moment. Tell us about that again. Yeah, that, that investment is, is probably key to why they chose, uh, Bell over Jones. Because really, on paper, the difference between them might honestly be negligible. Jones is a year younger, but both drivers are prolific movers right now in regards to passing or restarting. Jones has a production trajectory that shouldn't go unconsidered. Uh, he is, his peer as a 21 year old fared better than a 21 year old Jeff Gordon. Uh, his peer is a 22 year old bested Jeff Gordon, Kyle Bush, Joey Logano, and Kyle Larson. And at 23, his peer was better than Joey Logano and Chase Elliott. It's tough to just toss him aside for Christopher Bell, but Bell is a homegrown guy. He was yanked out of micro sprints and plugged into a Toyota ride at every step of his development. He is, from all accounts, the manufacturer's blueprint. And last year on this podcast, we estimated that Toyota either paid or facilitated $23 million for his development in trucks and Xfinity. 
And that makes him, by my count, the most expensive driver ever developed by someone other than dad. And if, <laughs> if there's, if there's a return on investment, if that sort of thing can be measured, I don't know how Toyota even turns a profit at this point because 23 Cup Series wins, which I think constitutes a pretty good career, that's a million dollars a win. If he wins 46 times, he is a half million dollars per win. I don't know how you secure an ROI at this point, but you can't begin an attempt at a return on your investment if you don't start, and this is his start. He's frankly, costs too much to develop for Toyota, to backtrack now, uh, far more than Jones ever did. And ergo, he is Toyota's pick. We like to look at everything, you know, just in the world, I guess. We're humans as winners and losers. Um, Christopher Bell, certainly a winner, right? Climbing in the 20. Uh, we covered some of those things last week in terms of what every young driver wants, right? Being on the top team in a fast car with, with a whole bunch of money. I mean, Christopher Bell is a huge winner here. Uh, who are the losers, if if anybody in this situation? I have to think, you know, maybe we get more context when we figure out where Eric Jones goes, but he's not going to any team, right, that we think is the caliber of Joe Gibbs Racing. Uh, so it's hard to see him getting a better situation immediately. Uh, Long term, is it JGR? I wonder, I remember the, the Matt Kenseth move, right? We talk about Logano and, you know, getting rid of Logano for Kenseth. That was an immediate return, though. Kenseth did provide an immediate return long-term. Uh, you, you want Joey Logano on your team, and you wonder if they look back and regret that. But at least they have the immediate return of Matt Kenseth. Is this comparable? Because I don't see the, the immediate return of Christopher you know, with Christopher Bell, or maybe I'm just uh, not thinking straight here. So you tell me. Well, you asked really good questions, and it, it kind of got my wheels turning. This isn't a crime's not the right word, but this is a victimless problem. Eric Jones is going to be fine. He's going to land on his feet with, it might not be as good of a team as Joe Gibbs racing, but he's going to have a ride in the cup series next year. I think everyone's comfortable with that. Joe Gibbs racing will be fine. Uh, I mean, Christopher Bell won't be the next man out. That will likely be Martin Truex or Denny Hamlin, and that's based solely on their age, not indicative of their performance. And let's be honest, I don't think we need to turn and look at the Toyota pipeline. I think we should just consider who's a free agent at the time of Martin Truex's retirement. If it's Chase Elliott or Ryan Blaney, Joe Gibbs Racing is probably going to try to sign Chase Elliott or Ryan Blaney. I think they've been pretty obvious about going for the best talent available. To me... The loser in this situation is Toyota. Uh, they have poured millions of dollars into driver development. They've secured money for Eric Jones to go racing, certainly in the Xfinity series. And now they've lost him. They don't get to reap the rewards of anything that comes from this point forward. If we can't count on JGR to get in line with the goals of their manufacturer, and again, I'm not so... Sure, they should because things are working out really well for Joe Gibbs Racing. Then Toyota is developing drivers for its competition to use one day down the road. It's sort of a fruitless endeavor, all this spending, because what exactly are they spending on? Driver development is in a truly bizarre space right now. The manufacturer spending the most money is Toyota. 
and they have no real cup rides for any of their young drivers. Ford has a modest development program and a plethora of potential outlets, one of which is Stuart Haas Racing. Chevrolet has the most available rides in the Cup Series and no real driver <laughs> development plan at all. So maybe and there's they, a balance to be struck, you're saying. <laughs> yeah, and, and honestly, Chevrolet is about to fall ass backwards into Eric Jones. So maybe no plan is better than Toyota's plan. <laughs> I don't know. But, I mean, Chevrolet's going to look really smart if Jones is winning races in a Chevrolet. I'll say that. But I think that this just boils down to, again, this is a victimless problem. It's just a very strange situation in which this manufacturer in the sport trying to win races, they're spending a lot of money, but it's not really clear where this money is going yet if they don't have an outlet for the end product. Good stuff. More good insight on this, and uh, it's not the last we'll talk about it because we still have more dominoes to fall, and it provides for some good content, at least on this podcast. So uh, we will address this as things go forward. Next up, speaking of, uh, I don't know, driver development like we were just talking about, but we're talking the Xfinity series and what we've uh, learned about the Xfinity series this year. David, uh, we've talked about it before. I don't know the perception that maybe it's a weak year in terms of the, the talent pool. And, and just one example I bring up is just early on in the season. Remember what Chase Briscoe said? He said he figured he had to win eight times, eight times to, to prove to other people that he was cup worthy, right? To prove that he was uh, uh, eligible to really succeed on a higher level. Eight times he would have to win just because, you know, one win in the field that he was in, uh, that's the impression we, you know, I took from it, maybe others took from it, is that, you know, a few wins with the field and talent around him wasn't going to show people much, but eight wins certainly would. Uh, so how do you, now that we're, you know, into August and uh, more than halfway through the season, I mean, do, do you look at it as a weak field, a weak year? What's the best way to categorize the Xfinity Series this year? Yeah, I know I've written about the scaling back of Cup Series driver participation, and that is part of what we're seeing this year. But also consider the four teams that comprised the championship four in 2019. Three of them have new drivers. The fourth, uh, Justin Allgaier in junior motorsports are really struggling, but to the effect Bell, Reddick, and Custer had on this series last year, that has 21 victories out of 33 races gone. It was top heavy last season and, and the drivers at the top are now gone. So we are experiencing a sea change of sorts. The drivers who were second tier in 2019, you mentioned Briscoe, Austin Sendrick is another, Noah Gragson is another. They are the new top tier. And how we gauge their development can be challenging, I think. Each of them were worse from a result standpoint in 2019, which means in evaluating this new top tier and some of the other prospects who've entered the series, we might have to look elsewhere, maybe home in on things like passing and restarting to see if we can chart significant growth as opposed to minor growth and understand if they are indeed improving as their results would have us believe. Now, I I do question the overall strength of the series. I think that is very easy 
to see at times. Not surprisingly, Kyle Busch, very successful in the Xfinity series. Also, not surprisingly, AJ Allmendinger ranks first in Pierre right now for the Xfinity series outside of Kyle Busch. I would say that AJ is the pound for pound best driver who's been at least a semi-regular this year. And oh, by the way, he's cherry picking his schedule and he's executed on it for the most part. So given the the youth and inexperience of the series, I don't think that comes as a shock. But seeing those two guys have the success that we probably would expect them to have makes you realize, oh yeah, okay, this is this is probably uh, a little bit light of a series just in terms of talent, but it's going to have to start somewhere, and we're kind of witnessing that. Yeah, I mean, in 2019, we had uh, what four blue chippers that that you were you knew you know were going to make that step up sooner if not later, and four of them ended up doing it. You know, this season in 2020, and uh, they're they're doing well pound for pound. A lot of them, you know, they're surviving and and sometimes thriving in the Cup series. Let's look at the Xfinity series this year. I mean, I think you, you've said, you know, I've identified Chase Briscoe, Ross Chastain, at least they're viewed, right? They're perceived. Ross Chastain has, has the Ganassi tie-in and Chip Ganassi has said great stuff about him. Uh, Chase Briscoe keeps on winning and we've talked about the Ford pipeline and, and some, the Stuart Haas affiliation and some openings perhaps there for on the cup side. So, so they're viewed for, you know, as next in line for cup series jobs. Is, is that valid? There are a few ways to look at this. One, they are both on the older side of the prospect spectrum. Briscoe is 25. He would be a 26-year-old Cup Series rookie if he makes the leap next year. Uh, now, that's not to say that that's bad. Jimmy Johnson was a 26-year-old rookie. Yep. Things weren't <laughs> fine. Brad Keselowski was a 26-year-old rookie. But Briscoe didn't achieve obvious Xfinity series success until Bell and Reddick and Custer, and we'll throw in Nemechek as well, until all of those drivers graduated. And all of those drivers are younger, by the way. But Briscoe's passing and his restarting numbers were in good spots last year. They still are. The problem is that there are drivers who are younger that might have as good of numbers or better. Austin Sendrick comes to mind. Sendrick is the top restarter in the Xfinity series, and he is he is so damn good. 73 positions gained from restarts through the first half of the season. The next highest total is 37. It sounds like a typo. It isn't. He's also bordering on being the top passer as well, and he's had the fastest car in the series this season and is just now figuring out how to win with it. That should be enough to make him scary good during the second half of the season, and that is some legitimate competition that Chase Briscoe is going to have to figure out if he's going to go forth and get those eight wins and potentially a championship. And... As for Chastain, he's older. He's 27. He'll be 28 next season if he does land a, a cup gig. And I, Alan, I'll tell you, he's not been in any of the conversations I've heard uh, about involving the number 42 car at Chip Ganassi Racing. The the names are Bubba Wallace and Matt Kenseth, according to those in the know. Now, that could change. Talks could certainly go south or change direction. But Chastain, while his peer is high, uh, he ranks fourth in the series right now. He is struggling to pass consistently outside of the restart window. 
And I don't know many who thought he'd go winless through the first 18 races this year, but here we are. And I think that could create some pause by teams that were previously considering him that are looking to fill rides in advance of 2021. That is interesting. Uh, when we talk about the Xfinity series field, all the names we've mentioned in terms of success and, you know, whether perceived as a weak year or not, David, who we haven't mentioned are guys with cup experience. And I'm, I'm pointing at Justin Allgaier and Daniel Hemrick who are struggling. If you look on Motorsports Analytics, I did some research, David. I'm sure, you know, it's your research, so I'm sure you know as well. But Justin Allgaier has the worst top 15 efficiency in the series. And that means he is running in the top 15 a whole bunch and not finishing there. Daniel Hemrick, right up there in that, sta- in that same stat. They, they both seem to lead the series in crashing. Uh, we can talk about that in a second, but you know, whether that's luck or not, but they both have fast cars as well. So they have the equipment according to the speed charts and they're not getting it done this year. Uh, what do we make of that? What should we make of that? You know, for Allgaier, I don't, I don't know that his, his crashing is, is crazy high. I mean, it's up there. His, his frequency is 0.39 times per race, but that's not among the five highest. But it, it's the timing of his crashes that is really hurting him. He has had seven crashes in the final one-tenth of races. Wow. So seven, just this season? Seven, just this season. Oh so seven, seven late race crashes. Now, two of those are from Daytona and Talladega. Take that for what it's worth. But there are still five more to account for. And in each of those, I think it's fair to question his awareness a little bit. Uh, he's a veteran. He's 34 years old. He's, he's not a, a baby in the Xfinity series. He, he should know better at times. You, you can argue he shouldn't be battling with some of these drivers for position or just have enough intelligence to avoid it altogether. Uh, Bristol really comes to mind because that seemed like a race that Justin Allgaier should have won and, and probably could have or could have and probably should have. But that, Last restart with Noah Gragson, it was a difficult spot, and I get it. He was battling with Gragson for the lead, and and Gragson did what Noah Gragson has been doing. The book's out on on Noah. He will rough you up uh, to get a position. That is known. That that is that is universal knowledge, and it could have been avoided altogether if we backtrack a few laps. Allgaier was the leader at Bristol and he chose to restart from the inside. Very curious because the outside groove is dominant at Bristol. And while Allgaier had this great launch, as maybe you would expect, and was probably the reason that he picked that spot, Gragson stayed with him and ultimately took the lead. And that's when the crash occurred. Had Allgaier selected the outside groove, the odds suggest Gragson would not have been anywhere near as close to being the problem that he proved to be. I'm guessing that Gragson was blamed for that internally because they're both junior motorsports guys, but the situation could have been avoided if Allgaier made better use of his leverage as the leader. And that is a lack of awareness. And ultimately he's, he's got to be smarter. He's got to go get these finishes. So look, his passing numbers are excellent. They typically are. His lack of success has more to do with decision-making and awareness and not really anything to do with mediocrity 
you said it, the fast car, the seven car is the third fastest in the series after Austin Cinder can chase Briscoe. The speed is there. The results aren't. And that's going to have to have a uh, see a course correction over the course of the second half of the season. How about a guy like Hemrick? Limited chances uh, or lim- limited opportunities, right? Partial schedule in that eight car. Uh, that eight car has speed, uh, but th- the results, not there. Five DNFs and 12 starts. Mm. One was an engine in Las Vegas. Uh, another was a transmission this past weekend at Road America, which he might not be exonerated from, but he was also caught in crashes in Phoenix, Homestead, and Pocono. And there is a sense that he should be better than this. I, I think that is real. It's, it's possible he is better than this once the sample size grows because outside of the DNFs I mentioned, he hasn't finished worse than ninth. He has a positive surplus passing value. He ranks uh, well on restarts, uh, fifth in overall restart retention. And his car with crew chief Taylor Moyer, when Hamrick is in it, ranks as the fifth fastest car in the series. So I would actually chalk his struggles up to sample size, a little bit of, per- of a perception issue. But this team is much better than what they are showing. But they haven't finished half of their races. And even if there are some mental shortcomings there, or, or maybe a problem behind the scenes, uh, that DNF rate just does not feel sustainable. I think it will certainly turn around for Daniel Hemrick. Good. Let's hope we, uh, we see some positive regression for Mr. Hemrick, but a lot of good storylines, uh, in the Xfinity series going forward. All right, every week here on Positive Regression, we preview the upcoming race weekend, and we're going to do that this weekend like we do every other episode, except with a twist, because look, we've we've never been to the road course at Daytona, especially for the, the cup race and the full cup series, and to preview this weekend, we have a special guest, winner of the 24 hours at Daytona, winner, we know his resume, Jamie McMurray of Fox, proud to call you a teammate. But, Jamie, it's even more special to have you here on Positive Aggression because of your resume on this road course. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks. I, I, um, I'm I a little envious that I'm not going to get to race this weekend. I haven't really missed driving, but when I heard they were going to run on this road course, I, I've run so many laps there. I, I thought it would be a lot of fun to get to be a part of of the first race. But I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to watch. It's going to be a tremendous amount of racing and the fact that there's not going to be any practice. I And a lot of these guys have never run – uh, you know, on this track. And when you look at the truck series, some of them have never even run a road course. So that's going to be kind of a lot for everyone to digest over the weekend. Yeah. And that, that's some of the, the, the craziest part. And, but, and you will get to see it as a broadcaster, if you will. And I just want to touch on this, Jamie, because it's been such a pleasure to work with you on some of these truck races. I just want the audience to know, Jamie, how good you are at this. Because I have the benefit of listening to the scanner, right? I'm listening to all sorts of channels and people talking throughout the race. And you're broadcasting from the booth back in Charlotte. And let me tell you, everything they are saying on the radio about trends or or tires or where things are going to go and pieces of the track, I hear all that and you don't. But you say the exact same thing. You can... You're able to see that from the monitor and from your experience. And I just want people to know how good you are of a broadcaster and how it's such a pleasure to work with you, Jamie. Well, thanks. I, you know, I, I think getting to, to drive on the tracks for so many years, though that will change over time. I mean, it's fairly current of, of getting out of the car. And, um, you know, I, I really like Alan. I, I love getting to, to be a part of that. It, it's, a, it's so much, it's, a, it's stressful in a totally different way, but like watching those races, you know, it's hard to, the one thing that, that I love about it is 
when you when you watch a race and you see someone crash on the first lap or you see someone's motor blow up on the last lap and they've run well all day long, they don't get a good finish. Those are devastating days and days when you can't sleep as a driver for like two or three nights. But as a broadcaster, you're like, well, that sucks for him. And then you go home and you don't even think about it again. So <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it's fun because you get to still kind of be a part of the sport, but you're, you know, you're not just the, you don't have the, the, that connection of, of stress that goes with being on a team or, or a driver. Uh, all right. Well, we'll get, we'll get back to Daytona. You mentioned, uh, your, your eagerness to be down there driving and we mentioned the success you had. Your resume speaks for itself. I know you come from a karting background growing up. Uh, in terms of the road course, is, did that background help you when it comes to road course racing at the higher levels? And, and could that benefit other drivers who may have something of a karting background this weekend? Yeah, I mean, having the karting background, you know, the the one thing that's a little different f- from mine that I think what some other guys have had is that I did I did road courses karting. Um, I did a lot of sprint racing, which in karting that's a shorter track, like one mile and under. But I also did a ton of of road racing, which you know you you would run on the Daytona track, you run Charlotte, uh, they run Road America. So I've run a bunch of these great road courses, and I grew up doing that, and I, and I really liked it. And, and so I had, I had some ability, but I think the other, the other part is that everyone, you know, confidence is such a big deal. And, and I went into those being really confident because everyone told me I was going to be good at it. And, um, and I think that makes a big difference. And there's, there's a lot of guys that dread going to the road courses. And, and I don't think that's any different than when you, you know, someone dreads going to an oval type track. They never run well at those. And, you know, for me personally, I just, I love the road races. I, I wish that we would have had more of them on our schedule. And I love the opportunity to get to go run the, the Rolex race. It, you know, it was in January and it was getting to be with Ganassi. I mean, you knew you had a shot to win it every single year. So I, I just, I really enjoyed it, but definitely coming from a karting background, I think makes a little bit of a difference. Jamie, it strikes me that this weekend, what we're going to see in Daytona may present the biggest challenge in terms of setup preparation that uh, certainly certainly the Cup Series drivers will see this year. Because on one hand, it is a road course. And on the other hand, it's a super speedway with a 31 degree banking. Would you want a car to skew towards one of those over the other? Or is a perfect balance achievable? Well, I don't think the oval will be near as big a deal this weekend as what is at the Roval. Um, when you exit the chicane on the backstretch at the Roval, you, you could run wide open um, around to that front stretch chicane for a few laps. And then as the tires started to wear out, it, that became more of a challenge. But the with the radius being so big at Daytona, I, I don't think there's going to be any problem with 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 running the oval part. Um, you know, the big fear when, when we first went to the Roval was, you know, finding a tire that was durable enough to hold up to the banking, but then also had enough grip that you could get through the infield. And as I've read, you know, the Goodyear notes that they send out, like it just, they're going with this Watkins Glen tire and, and they don't seem worried about it at all. And, and I think from the team's perspective, um, it's going to be a little bit easier um, because really the, the oval, I don't, I don't see handling being a problem. And so all they're going to have to do is just keep the car from bottoming out there. So you're probably going to have the most travel, um, you know, on, on the banking of the oval. 
but you know, the one thing that they're not going to have this weekend that, that we all know from Charlotte are those, they, they are going to have them in one corner, which is on the front stretch, those turtle curbs. But those things were brutal, uh, on the backstretch. That backstretch chicane at Charlotte, you know, I, I think it was Eric Jones or Bubba Wallace, or it might have been both of them that like jumped those and hit the wall. Um, there's a lot of forgiveness at Daytona. The, the walls aren't real close. Um, when, when you think about where the chicanes are and there's a lot of runoff area. So I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to be a huge deal. I, I ran some laps, uh, in the iRacing simulator at Fox. Uh, and, and, it, you know, it was crazy to me. First off, I, I don't have an iRacing rig and I, I watched all that along with everybody else earlier in the year. Uh, but it's amazing to me how close they can get that. And when, you know, I got in and ran the first few laps, it was just, it's, it's really close to being, I feel like what they're, they're going to have on the track. And, and my first few laps, I just used my braking points in the sports car. Um, I backed it up just a little bit and, Honestly, all those braking markers were really close. Uh, you're, you're going a lot slower because, you know, the, the NASCARs don't accelerate quite as quick and, and they don't, you know, they obviously don't brake quite as well. But, um, you know, I, I, I feel like if you've run any lap there in the Rolex car that are in a sports car, you're going to be comfortable right away. And, and if you're one of those guys that hasn't, it's a pretty easy road course. You know, it's flat. You can see all the way around the tracks and, you know, when we go to some of the road courses, you have blind corners and you have to pick like landmarks out, like maybe a tree or something that you shoot for as you crest the hill. But Daytona is a pretty simple, pretty simple road course. That's one thing I wanted to ask you about, the ability for some of these drivers to adapt at this track, maybe compared to others. I know you just brought up the blind spots, uh, but how, how tough is that for a driver? I was talking with Christian Eckes in, in the truck series, and he just said, you know, because of his, uh, you know, point standings and all that stuff, he'll start up front. He's never been on a road course before. So he was like, why would they put me up front when I've never done anything like this before? Uh, he's worried about everyone in back of him. But in terms of adapting, how tough is it for at this particular track compared to others? Yeah, I think a bunch of those guys are going to surprise themselves. Um, I, I think for like Christian, he's a great example because he's a great driver, right? He's, he's young, great driver. He's never been on a road course. But I think that as long as they don't try to get too aggressive too early – I think they'll be surprised at how quick they're going to adapt. Um, and again, like I say, it's, it is a pretty easy road course. Now, you know, guys like Tagliani that have run there before and have also run in the truck series, like that, that, that he's got to be the favorite, I think, going in because not only is he with one of the best teams, but he's actually run some of those truck races before because there's a few other road course guys I know they've kind of thrown in. And I just like, it's such a big challenge to, to, you know, getting a unique, unique vehicle. You don't know the other drivers on the track, but, but I think some of the, the regulars, even though they've never run on a road course, I know that they've, you know, most likely done a tremendous amount of iRacing. Um, and they've, they've probably been in the simulators and the simulators are incredible. So I, I, I think they're going to surprise themselves, uh, at how well they'll do. So Jamie, now I'm just curious, what is, what is left to learn? What, what do you feel is an unknown that we will have answered this weekend? Well, I, I mean, I think getting through those first couple of laps is going to be, you know, critical for those guys. Um, how that front stretch chicane is going to work out for the guys that have never run Daytona, that, that's probably going to be a little advantage that they put that chicane in because that's going to be an equalizer because no one really has any references or, knows what to expect right there. Um, but I think the big thing, and 
and I know this won't happen, but it's what everyone should do is to take it really easy the first lap. I think the trucks are going to have a little bit of an advantage in that they're going to watch the races the day before. And I'm positive that on the first lap of like the Arca race or the Xfinity race that someone's going to make a critical mistake. Um, and I, I'm hoping that if the guys see that, like maybe in the truck series that they, they'll realize like, okay, um, you know, don't, don't overstep your boundaries. The other thing that's the, that's the unknown there that the iRacing rig was really bad about. And I don't know that it's going to be this way, uh, in real life is that it wheel hopped in a lot of corners and, and on a road course, once it starts wheel hopping, you have to either let off the brake or give it gas. And if you're too deep in the corner, then, then you end up wrecked. So, um, I think those are kind of the things that, that I would be worried about heading into that, even if, even if I'd run the track before. Uh, two more quick things to, I just want to touch on. Um, j- just being one of the few people, Jamie, I think there are four people on, on the planet. I think I've said this to you before that have won Daytona on the high banks and also, uh, the 24 hours. Uh, did the, did the significance of the 24 hour event, was that something as significant in your head, you know, growing up as something like the Daytona 500? Did it change after you indeed won the 24-hour event or were a part of that team? What was that like for you? Well, it's completely different um, because I, I grew up, you know, I wanted to race stock cars and the Daytona 500 is the biggest race and and that was a incredibly special day. Um, what made the Rolex so special is that we'd come so close so many years. I, I, I finished second, third, uh Previous to that, um, we had led a bunch of the rates in other years and broke, or I hit the wall one year leaving pit road. And I'll, I'm going to say that's something that they'll have to watch for. Leaving pit road at Daytona, that's the hardest part of the racetrack, is getting up onto the racetrack. And and I hit the wall there at like 2 in the morning. I think we were leading the race and destroyed the car. Um, but but being able to win after coming so close. And, that you know, one thing that that's really hard to explain to people about the 24-hour race is that, you know, you're up for close to 30 hours, even though you get little cat naps. Um, and you're just, you're physically exhausted when it's over. And it's, it's, you, it's like the highest high or the lowest low, depending on where you finish. Um, and so they're kind of special in different ways. And every week on the podcast, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but we pick contrarian contenders uh, for the cup race. Not necessarily a favorite, but maybe someone that would surprise you or not surprise you to get a top 10. Is there anyone uh, you'd want to pick out as a contrarian contender for the first uh, for the first road course race at Daytona? Well, I think Michael McDowell is going to have a, a great weekend. He uh, He's a good road racer. He's run a lot of laps there. I think it's most likely going to rain, and that's going to add a whole different dynamic to this of, of having to race in the rain. And he's going to be really good at that. I, I mean, he's kind of the guy that, that I have my eye on. All right. Well, we really appreciate you joining us. And again, I appreciate you as a teammate uh, on Fox, and I, I look forward to doing the truck race with you this weekend. But thank you for your expertise. Thank you for sharing your experiences, and thank you for being on Positive Regression. All right. Yeah, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Another good episode, David. Don't forget, everybody, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We are available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That kind of stuff does really, it really helps in spreading the word. We do notice it is appreciated. Uh, tell your friends, recommend it to them. Uh, we, we love hearing from new listeners because, uh, we think, we hope, we hope it makes you a smarter race fan. If you have any questions, send them to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard with new cool stuff. What are you working on? Yeah, stay tuned to motorsportsanalytics.com because there is 
A lot coming up. The first production ratings for the truck series will be posted soon. And uh, also a two-part project that finds me analyzing potential Hendrick Motorsports hires perhaps identify the uh, identifying the most ideal hiring so motorsportsanalytics.com go do that yeah make sure you get on that because it's good stuff and uh i am happy to say i'll be going to daytona this weekend for for the unknown right that we talked all about it the road course uh first time for everybody right xfinity truck arca uh the, the cup obviously and i'll be down on pit road for the truck race which is on sunday at noon on fs1 so make sure you watch that tune in to race hub every night monday through Monday through Thursday on FS1 and check out my Twitter account. I had a cool piece this week about the history of NASCAR participation in the 24 hours. That was really cool to look back on. So that was a good piece. And uh, the A-list with uh, Michael McDowell, who, as you heard, Jamie McMurray says could be a contrarian contender. He was my A-lister this week on Race Hub. So make sure you check out my Twitter account for those pieces. It turned out to be good stuff. But uh, yeah, like I said, another good episode. Looking forward to Daytona. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a nature show host. In the native habitat of a suburban driveway, the poor victim of a broken windshield is left assessing his vehicle utterly helpless. Well, not true. If he's got GEICO, he can file a claim online, over the phone, or with his handy mobile app. But like a lone gazelle, he'll suddenly be left to fend for himself, awaiting his terrible fate. Nope. GEICO will assign him a designated claims team to help him out, too. So the gazelle gets his car fixed and everything. Wow. Nature is so cool. GEICO. Great service without all the drama.